The Dangers of Space Junk, this week on Planetary Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Public Radio's travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan. As if there isn't already enough trash in Earth orbit, now there is growing concern about satellite-destroying debris that could result from use of anti-satellite weapons. We'll talk about the problem with Michael Crapon, head of the Stimson Center's Space Security Project, along with a possible solution. Here's the news from around the solar system this week. Space Shuttle Discovery is still in the giant vehicle assembly building at the Kennedy Space Center. It should by now have been mated to its replacement external tank, making it almost ready to roll back out to the launch pad. NASA has given the go-ahead for the Phoenix mission to Mars. The long-armed lander will lift off in 2007, headed for the far north of the planet. As Mars exploration rover Spirit finds more and more evidence of past water in Gusev Crater, Opportunity is making excruciatingly slow progress getting itself out of the sand dune it has been stuck in. Principal investigator Steve Squires is confident the rover will be back rolling across the plains of Mars in a few weeks. Meanwhile, scientists think they've solved a 150-year-old mystery about the red planet's off-center South Pole ice cap. You can read about both of these stories at planetary.org. Coming up, a status report on Cosmos 1, the solar sail, from Project Head Lou Friedman. Please, please also stay tuned for one of the silliest What's Up segments yet from Bruce Betts and yours truly. We're having fun now. Here's Emily. Hi, I'm Emily Lakdawalla with questions and answers. A listener asked, Can one Mars orbiter take a picture of another? The Mars Global Surveyor mission has just released two such images. Mars Global Surveyor had already captured photos of many of the Mars landers, both Mars Exploration rovers, both Viking landers, and probably the failed Mars Polar Lander. Snapshots of orbiters are harder because they move very fast. But in April of this year, Mars Global Surveyor managed to capture images of both of the other two spacecraft that are currently orbiting Mars, NASA's Mars Odyssey, and ESA's Mars Express. These images are incredibly cool, but how were they useful to scientists? Stay tuned to Planetary Radio to find out. We know a lot of our listeners are uh, wondering, following what's going on with the solar sail, probably visiting the website. If you're not, you may want to try that, planetary.org. There's a whole special section on the solar sail. But we did want to bring in the head of the program as well for a, a brief status report. So Lou Friedman, Executive Director of the Planetary Society, rejoins us. Lou, how's it going? Glad to be here, Matt. And it's uh, going very well. In fact, you know, our launch takes place out in the Barents Sea, north of the Arctic Circle, and uh, not even the team gets to witness it. It's on a Russian Navy submarine from below the surface, and uh, it's a Navy operation, so very, very uh, limited contact with the uh, launch information. It'll all be through the mission control area in Moscow, and then relayed here to the uh, Pasadena control area we have at the Planetary Society, uh, and then we'll put the information up on the web. So the best we can do is uh, is provide updates uh, 
And the website is going to be the best place to uh, follow the mission. So where are we now? The spacecraft is at the submarine base. The uh, spacecraft has uh, just reached the submarine, uh, the launch area in Severomorsk, near the uh, larger city of Murmansk on the Barents Sea. It, it will go through two weeks of checkout, and then it will be loaded on top of the rocket and taken out to sea. So the spacecraft's a done deal at this point, and we're very proud that we've gotten this far. It's already quite an achievement to have uh, built the world's first solar sail spacecraft and to be taking it uh, to the launch area. Uh, but now we have a intense several-week period uh, with our team to prepare for mission operations. All of the things that go into tracking the spacecraft, to receiving the telemetry, to being end- able to send commands in case we want to change any of the onboard sequences, to get the real orbit, not just the planned orbit. So there's a lot of intense work going on right now in Russia and in the United States among all of the people at the ground stations, the tracking areas, and the mission operations areas to uh, be able to uh, handle the data and handle the commands to the spacecraft. Now, I think one of the most interesting stories is the tracking network that the Planetary Society has been able to organize with a lot of cooperation. Yes, uh, it's, it is quite amazing because uh, uh, this is all special for our mission. Uh, we're using a, a Russia, uh, two Russian tracking stations near Moscow, uh, one of which hasn't been used uh, for many years except on a single satellite in the UHF band. Uh, we have uh, the Czech Republic uh, station at Panskavess, and then we have uh, one at Berkeley, the University of California, Berkeley, and one from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, uh, in Fairbanks. Uh, so those are the main tracking stations. In addition, we'll have two portable stations for the first orbit because those take, uh, we want to get some critical data while it's over the ocean as well. So we have put together a network. Again, you can see it up here on our website and a map uh, of the tracking stations here on our website. Thanks very much, Lou. That's Lou Friedman, the head of the Cosmos One Solar Sail Project with a status report. Of course, we're going to continue to follow the progress of the solar sail here on Planetary Radio, just as we will on the website, with that launch now two weeks or less away. I'll be back in just a moment with a conversation about the militarization of space and the hazard that could present for other things that are up there right after this. This is Buzz Aldrin. When I walked on the moon, I knew it was just the beginning of humankind's great adventure in the solar system. That's why I'm a member of the Planetary Society, the world's largest space interest group. The Planetary Society is helping to explore Mars. We're tracking near-Earth asteroids and comets. We sponsor the search for life on other worlds, and we're building the first-ever solar sail. You can learn about these adventures and exciting new discoveries from space exploration in the Planetary Report. The Planetary Report is the Society's full-color magazine. It's just one of many member benefits. You can learn more by calling 1-877-PLANETS. That's toll-free, 1-877-752-6387. And you can catch up on space exploration news and developments at our exciting and informative website, planetarysociety.org. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds. Anyone who has seen the latest Star Wars movie has also seen the violent creation of massive amounts of space junk. What about the real thing? Could much more limited and primitive military action in Earth orbit generate lethal debris? That's one of the questions examined by the Space Security Project at the Henry L. Stimson Center in Washington, D.C. Michael Crapen is co-founder and president emeritus of the center and director of this project. 
Michael, your own material mentions that the United States uh, did the last testing of uh, space weaponry 20 years ago, 1985. Why is this topic resurfacing now? It's resurfacing for a number of reasons. The United States is now extraordinarily dependent on satellites, more so than ever before in our history, for our military, for commerce, and for civil society. So that's one reason. The second reason is that the Bush administration and the Pentagon have determined that the same national security policies that, in their view, serve the country's interests on the ground ought to be applied to space. And that means that you don't wait to be hit. You don't wait to suffer severe damage. You react and preempt to uh, gathering or imminent threats. And for space, this means to develop the capacity for what the Pentagon calls offensive counterspace systems. For you and I, that basically means space weapons. Now, our listeners know that we rarely, if ever, deal with defense issues, much less uh, uh, politically controversial issues, except those related to space exploration. This issue certainly has elements of all of those, but it actually is uh, pretty closely tied, as you establish in a little booklet, a report that you've published, Space Security or Space Weapons. One of the elements of this debate has a lot to do with uh, damage that could take place, not intentionally, but because of the, either the testing or the actual use of space weaponry, because those effects are, are not likely to be limited just to the, the target of that, uh, that test or action. Well, that's right, Matt. Space warfare is going to produce debris, and debris kills indiscriminately in space. It doesn't recognize friend or foe. It doesn't recognize a military mission uh, and distinguish it from the uh, space shuttle or the space station or from planetary exploration that must go through a debris field. Debris is a killer, and the Pentagon knows that, which is why the Pentagon has the preference of engaging in these activities, if need be, by using temporary or reversible effects, non-destructive effects, but it's awfully hard to dictate the rules of warfare in space uh, just as it is on the ground. Your report mentions that while the United States may have a clear advantage in space, technological and otherwise, that creating these kinds of weapons, and maybe not weapons that are quite as uh, as targeted or, well, benign is the wrong word, but uh, with, with the localized effects that the Pentagon may want, uh, that other countries have the capability for building weapons and they may not be so uh, discriminating. Matt, all you need is a medium-range ballistic missile, so an extended-range Scud missile. Uh, the missiles that North Korea has been peddling around the world, for example, can get a country into space. And once there, you can throw out gravel, marbles. Uh, you don't need a very sophisticated device to do damage to space. Of course, if you use a nuclear weapon mm. in low Earth orbit, you can kill or damage a whole lot. And we've learned that because the United States, back in 1962, 
when we were still testing in the atmosphere, messed up, I think, every single satellite. There weren't many that were up there in 62. I think we killed or damaged five satellites uh, inadvertently. It was a very big test. It was a test of over one megaton hmm. in the atmosphere. And we messed up our satellites. We messed up a British satellite. And I think, although Moscow's not talking about it, we messed up one of their satellites, too. And this was because of the, the infamous electromagnetic pulse that uh, basically wipes out unprotected electronics? Uh, satellites weren't meant to, survi to survive that kind of radiation and other weapons effects. Now, we are trying, and others presumably are trying, to do better at this, but there's just so much you can do. Looking at the level that is far less destructive than a, a nuclear weapon in space, but still, as you said, basically throwing up a handful of gravel, gravel or marbles, this is not just speculative. You have uh, in this booklet available from the Stimson Center this, this pretty well-known photo of what a paint flake did to the space shuttle's windshield. Yeah, well, your listeners can go to... NASA's website, uh, there's an, orbitable, uh, an orbital debris quarterly newsletter on this. Uh, the effects of debris in space against the shuttle are, are pretty well known. Uh, in one shuttle mission in 99, the Discovery landed with evidence of 64 impacts. Wow. Ten of those were caused by man-made debris. The shuttle's uh, window panes need to be repeatedly replaced on these missions, as, and some tiles do as well because of debris hits. The, the International Space Station has to be moved on the average of once a year to avoid a debris hit. And the reason is pretty simple, because a marble-sized piece of debris in low Earth orbit is, is traveling at about ten times the speed of a rifle bullet. So you can just imagine the kind of impact that would cause. In fact, we can all visualize this because we can all we all have in our mind's eye that image of this uh, of the shuttle that took a debris hit as it was launching. Yes. And of course, the effects of that were not felt immediately, but they sure was they sure were felt in a tragic way upon reentry. We're talking with Michael Crapon. He's the co-founder of the Henry L. Stimson Center in Washington, D.C., and uh, is also the project director for something the uh, Stimson Center calls the Space Security Project. Now, I know that the Stimson Center, your project, uh, in addition to uh, analyzing the, the challenge here, has also made some recommendations, including a, a code of conduct in space. Well... The old-fashioned way of doing this was for the nations of the world to gather in Geneva and spend a decade or so uh, negotiating a lowest common denominator international convention. And I, I don't think this problem can wait that long. And in fact, many space-faring nations are taking steps to mitigate, mitigate uh, the debris that's, that's created just through natural space activities. 
And one part of our code of conduct is to standardize and globalize uh, debris mitigation techniques, the best debris mitigation techniques, because there's already 3,500 tons of space debris up there. Hmm. And it's increasing at a rate of, a, of about 150 tons per year. Now, what are, we, what are we talking about? We're talking about fragments of rocket bodies or paint chips or nuts and bolts and, you know, all kinds of things happen, including the breakup of satellites over time. Now, uh, over time in low Earth orbit, uh, debris does come to land. Yeah, as the orbits decay. As the orbits decay, we, 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 we get these amazing visuals. But you still have at least temporary problems in low Earth orbit. And, uh, of course, in geosynchronous orbit, uh, the debris problem is, is, in effect, a permanent one, a so, timeless one. So the code of conduct is, goes beyond dealing with uh, the, the potential negative effects of military action in space to deal with uh, just doing business up there. And that, in fact, doing business up there has become very, very important to, to all of humanity. To ambulances that have GPS units that need to get to their somebody in need as quickly as possible and get back to the hospital as quickly as possible, police cruisers, uh, doctors with cell phones and pagers. I mean, financial transactions, work, getting gas at the pump. Uh, there are so many daily transactions that now depend on space. And our armed forces that are in harm's way, working under terrible conditions, uh, without sufficient backup, absolutely re require satellite help to um, protect themselves and to find their adversaries. And if need be, to target them with a minimum of collateral damage. So we're totally dependent on satellites. The military benefits of satellites are completely connected with the protection of all satellites. And so in our code of conduct, we don't distinguish between steps related to military use of space and civil or commercial uses of space. For example, if we want spacefaring nations to improve their standards to mitigate space debris, and on the other hand, we say it's okay to flight test and deploy space weapons. We have a fundamental contradiction on our hands. So it all ties together. Michael, we're out of time. Can you tell people uh, where they can learn more about the Space Security Project? They can go to www.stimson.org. Michael, thank you so much for uh, joining us for a few minutes here. We appreciate that uh, you were willing to share the uh, findings of the Space Security Project with us on Planetary Radio. I'm grateful to you, too. Michael Crapon is the uh, co-founder and president emeritus of the Henry L. Stimson Center, a nonprofit, nonpartisan institution devoted to taking pragmatic steps toward ideal objectives. And we will put the link to uh, their website where you can find information about the Space Security Project on our website, perhaps right where you have linked to this radio show and are listening to it now. I'll be back in just a moment with Bruce Betts and What's Up and this week's Space Trivia Contest right after this return visit from Emily.
Emily Lakdawalla back with Q&A. Mars Global Surveyor has snapped several pictures of Mars landers and now both of the other Mars orbiters. How are these pictures useful? Images of landers are very important because they help to link the data acquired by orbital and landed missions. For instance, we now understand the geology of Opportunity's landing site very well, but in order for the mission to aid in our understanding of Mars's general geology, it is extremely important to know where Opportunity's detailed measurements were taken. With the precise location of Opportunity on Mars Global Surveyor's orbital images, Opportunity's detailed science results can be generalized to much broader regions of Mars. But how do images of orbiters help science? Actually, there's very little useful science or engineering data that can be retrieved from these images. Still, the photos are tremendously cool. Usually, once an orbiter leaves the Earth, we never see it again. Actually seeing it at Mars is exciting. These pictures are like treasured photos of our children going out into the world. Space missions are supposed to educate us, but they are also supposed to excite and inspire us too, and Mars Global Surveyor's pictures of Mars Odyssey and Mars Express do just that. Got a question about the universe? Send it to us at planetaryradio@planetary.org. And now here's Matt with more Planetary Radio. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio, so here's Bruce Betts, the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society, who will proceed to tell us what's up. Welcome. Hey, thank you. Good planets up there in the sky still, and uh, they're coming together. I'm just going to keep annoying you every week, telling you about how Saturn and Venus and Mercury in the sky are coming together. They will cluster within 1.5 degrees of each other on June 25th. But even now, Mercury's starting to poke its little head up over the horizon just after sunset. Astrologers around the world are running in excited circles with their hands waving in the air. I'm sure of it. (laughs) Slamming into each other, falling down, and hurting themselves. I wish we had pictures. But back to astronomy. (laughs) You can see Venus in the uh, shortly after sunset. You can see all of these looking in the west and Saturn will be is the highest at the moment and uh, the the dimmest but still looking like a bright star near Castor and Pollux. Venus, the brightest star-like object in the sky, can't miss it low in the west and Mercury really tough to see for the next week or so but starting to come up below Venus will also look like a bright star and watch them grow together in the night sky as perceived by we humans here on Earth. Now also you've got Jupiter up high in the sky uh, brightest star-like object up high in the sky in uh, in the evening sky and then mars in the southeast looking reddish before dawn and if you dig watching the moon pass by these things we've got the crescent moon by venus on june 7th and 8th and saturn on june 9th and jupiter on june 15th i was just thinking of how many years it's been since i looked reddish before dawn (laughs) it's been a long time and i'm glad to be able to say that too (laughs) so anyway um there's also for you amateur hardcore amateur astronomers out there don't miss uh, comet temple one which is now visible but around ninth magnitude for you playing in that that arena you'll need a a a decent amateur telescope and uh, be looking for it you can find many sites on the web that will tell you where to look and the interesting thing about temple one is it's about to get a visitor on july 3rd or 4th depending on your time zone the deep impact spacecraft will release a 400 pound uh, copper impactor to slam into it at 10 kilometers per second don't miss this planetary Smackdown, be there and be at the Planetary Society's Comet Bash 2005 on the evening of July 3rd in uh, the Pasadena area. 
And you can find out more on our website. If you are going to be in Southern California, come check us out and witness the whole event live. So Comet Smacking Party. It is. It'll be a Comet Smacking Party. It's uh, 10 kilometers per second. <laughs> We're making a hole in a comet. Or at yeah. least an impact crater in a comet. Yeah. Also, come to our website. Guess how big that impact crater will be, and you can wear, win really cool prizes. I was going to say, that's the big question, right? How big a hole will it be? It, it is the big question, and it will tell us a lot about it. And also, of course, they'll be doing observations. The whole con- science concept here is penetrate through the outer shell, which is probably highly modified to see what's really deep down forming most of the comet. On to this week in space history. 20 years ago, on June 10th, 1985, the Soviet Vega-1, spacecraft deployed an atmospheric probe, which then deployed a balloon in the Venus atmosphere that traveled successfully for 48 hours, roughly, and traveled some 6,000 miles returning data. So one of those missions a lot of people not highly aware of, but kind of cool, balloons in the atmosphere of Venus. Nice uh, nice uh, proving ground for uh, what some people would like to do on Mars, right? It's true. A rather different environment, however. <laughs> it should be easier on Mars. No, no, it should be not. a lot harder on Mars. <laughs> okay, never mind. <laughs> Mars, much thinner atmosphere, need big giant balloons or blimps or other things. Venus, so thick that you can float, you know, you'd float in the Venus atmosphere. I was just thinking so much less sulfuric acid to deal with, but anyway. <laughs> of course, you wouldn't actually float in the Venus atmosphere. I just want to make that clear. So don't try that at home. Darn. Okay, moving on to uh, the, the random space fact. I love this. I love this one. This is so cool. The surface gravity of Mercury and Mars is nearly identical. Is that right? Whoa, you say. That's because Mercury must be really dense. Mercury is really dense. It's it's quite dense. has that iron core, and so uh, despite having less mass, it does have a similar surface gravity. also has a smaller radius, which helps with the gravity, but you need that extra, extra density, which it does compared to Mars. It's a much closer in density to Earth because all that iron. Well, I join you in your enthusiasm. Oh, thank you very much. Let's be just as enthusiastic about the trivia contest. Oh, let's let's go on to the trivia contest. Uh, what do we ask him, Matt? Uh, it's about sunspots. You wanted sunspots. to know why... Why, why are sunspots cooler? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Or dark. Ooh. Or, no, ooh. no, no, no. Glad I didn't do that a couple <laughs> weeks ago. Yes. Why are sunspots dark, Matt? Who told us and what they win? A lot of people told us and had fun with this. And our winner, interestingly, because, you know, we do choose these randomly, is Yanni Lindstrom. Yanni Lindstrom, who said, I hope I win my first entry into the contest. Well, guess what, Yanni? He says he's been a fan of the show for a long time now, and he did get it right. Sunspots look dark because they are cooler than the rest of the surface of the sun, which is not to say they're cool. No, they're still uh, three or 4,000 kelvins, but they are cooler than the average surface temperature of nearly 6,000 kelvins and therefore radiate less light and so in comparison look dark. Let me t- tell you something else that's really cool about Yanni. He says he's hoping to watch the launch of Cosmos 1 since he's only about 1,500 kilometers from Murmansk which is near the submarine base. So, Excellent. We so he's in luck. Finland. Uh, he is in Finland. I didn't say that, did I? Yanni lives in Finland. <laughs> okay, and for the rest of you around the world, try to win your solar sail poster. Go to planetary.org slash radio and find out how to answer the following question. Who was the first child born of parents who had both flown to space? At least give the first name of the child and uh, and who the parents were, or, some perm- or the full name of the child. I'm more interested in... Were they on the same mission, and was this child born less than nine months after that mission? <laughs> if you know what I mean, nudge, nudge. No, actually, I don't, Matt. What, what, is, what do you mean? <laughs> oh, okay, okay. 
So anyway, uh, we about done there, Matt. I guess it would be exactly nine months. When do they need to have? Uh, when do they need to have that in there? Oh, Matt? you mean the deadline? Yeah, the deadline. June, is it nine months from now? Or is no, it no, it's it's much much sooner. June thirteen uh, at two p.m. Is uh, that the gestation period of the trivia contest? <laughs> I suppose so. <laughs> Never thought about it that way. But okay. This is a particularly silly. What's up? Isn't it? <laughs> It is. It is indeed. All right, everybody, go out there, look up in the night sky, and think about what the gestation period of your brain is. Thank you, and good night. Not long enough in my case. Obviously still premature. Uh, he's Bruce Betts, the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society, and he joins us each week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society. We hope you'll be here for our next jaunt around the solar system, including a solar sail update. Have a great week, everyone.